Welcome to From Florida, where you'll learn how minds are connecting, great ideas are colliding, and groundbreaking innovation is becoming a reality because of the University of Florida. I'm your host, Nikki Brown. Today, we are going to talk about something that is affecting so many of us in ways we never even considered, the disruption of the supply chain, both globally and nationally. We're joined by Professor Asu Vakaria, the McClatchy Professor and Director of the Supply Chain Management Centre in UF's Warrington College of Business. Asu also was a fellow of the Decision Sciences Institute and the Production and Operations Management Society. Asu, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Nikki. Thank you for inviting me. I think it's fair to say that many of us never gave the supply chain a second thought. That is until the past year when long waits developed for major products such as refrigerators and couches and even simple things like grocery items became harder to get. So let's start with the basics. What is the supply chain? To understand it, perhaps uh, taking the example of a product we all use on a regular basis might be helpful. So I, I tend to think of a supply chain as three different positions that are occupied before we get the product. The first position is who produces it. In this case, it's farms, and there are about 50,000 farms in the United States producing milk. These farms store the milk for at most 48 hours, and then it's put on trucks to be sent to, I guess, processing centers. That's where the homogenization as well as pasteurization takes place. And then once that's complete, then it's sent again on trucks to maybe a distribution center, if a public distribution center in Jacksonville, or maybe directly to the retail outlet, public retail outlet. All of this actually is really interesting to observe because it's supposed to happen in about two and a half days after the milk is produced. So that, in a nutshell, is the supply chain. We've got the source, the farms, we've got the processing stage where we homogenize milk and pasteurize it, and then we got the retail outlet, which is the place where we go and buy it. Is it accurate to say the pandemic set off supply chain disruptions, or was this a problem simmering out there before March 2020? This is a really interesting question, because when you say the pandemic set off disruptions, yes, it did. That's a short answer, but anything can set off a disruption. Disruptions are a way of life. If I'm a supply chain manager, I'm a supply chain operator, whatever point I'm at, even a consumer, Disruptions are faced by us all the time. I mean, we saw this as the, what, a great toilet paper shortage, maybe around March of last year or April of last year. So I think this is happening all the time. What's unusual about the pandemic is three or four things. One is it was the scale effect was significantly higher. So what happened was demand dropped so quickly and at such a high volume that it created a problem for us. The second thing was that over and above the demand stage, everybody sort of shut down. So we had, you know, what's going to be sort of known today to us as the great resignation, which was actually a great reduction in employment. The second part is most of this got impacted on an international scale. So it wasn't limited to a region of the world where we could deal with it in that region. It happened everywhere. The third thing is we don't know when it's going to end, okay? Because I I think there's this reoccurrence that's taking place in terms of the Delta and the Omicron. So I don't know the pandemic is over. And finally, is it going to reoccur frequently? Because if it is, then we have this issue about dealing with problems of this type over and over again. So again, the short answer, yes, the pandemic caused a disruption, but it's sort of, you know, part of a supply chain is encountering disruption. The scale here was significantly bigger. 
And I'm guessing that the shortages of workers and materials is a bigger factor in the disruption of the national supply chain, especially food items and household goods. Yeah, I I, I would tend to agree with that to some extent because uh, there is the sort of notion that everything within the country shut down. But if you actually take the global footprint of a supply chain, this was something that everybody also shut down. It wasn't only us. So when, when we say shortage of materials, shortage of this, that, yes, but it's sort of part of this entire supply chain which we expanded at a global basis. And so that's why this whole thing is being felt by us in every part of the world. It's not only the United States. It's just that we are paying a lot more attention to it. So let's focus on the global picture. Would you give us an overview of the major ports in the United States and, and where they are and who runs them? Yeah, I think the very simple way of looking at that is, uh, you know, just do a very quick scan of all the imports that come into the United States. And you'll see that approximately 20% are coming in from Asia and that are downloaded at LA. So that's the big port in terms of scale. I mean, think 20% of the entire volume of the US is LA. The second big one is Long Beach. Again, because of shipments from Asia, it's about 13% of the total volume in that country. Both of these ports are run by the local city councils or the municipalities that are involved. So there is very localized control here. Now, if you go down the list, there are lots of smaller ports that emerge. For example, New York, New Jersey is one. Houston is another. There is even Brunswick and Savannah, which are ports. But the scale effects compared to the imports coming in on the California side, which is LA and Long Beach, is significantly smaller. Across the nation, it appears that there is local control or, for example, state control. So, for example, the Port Authority of New York, the Port Authority of Georgia, and things like that. So those are the ones that control the ports. It's not federal control at all. Is there anything the federal government can do to have a significant impact? I think actually they've done what they can, but here is, here is a problem that you encounter in most of these situations. You have a federal government which is probably trying to sort of look at the collective good. Municipalities, ports, everything, when it's run at the local and state level, there is an essential conundrum that emerges, which is that the collective wisdom of the federal government, which is looking at the collective country as a whole, is not sort of manifested at the local level. So there is always going to be this tug of war. And yeah, sure, I mean, we did start the ports or mandate that they should be open 24-7. But coupled with that, there were some other effects that happened. So it's not exactly the federal government not doing things, but there is a difference in terms of how whatever they do will be received by the local authorities. And what were those other effects? Why didn't the 24-7 work the way? Yeah, I think, I think if you look at it from another perspective, it's the following. I try to think about this, this whole thing, and I, I sort of talk about this in my, you know, all my discussions with execs as well as my classes. Think about a kitchen sink, okay? You have the inflow, which is the tap, and you have the outflow, which is the drain. By doing the 24-7, all we did was we took that drain, which was maybe 18, 12, made it 24 to 7, so it made it larger. So the water that came into the sink from the tap sort of is being processed faster. Now, we didn't think about two things when we did that. One was, is there any change in terms of this magnitude of stuff coming in? That means the tap. How, how much have you opened it? And we kept opening it more and more and more. So the water level actually didn't drop when you open the drain. The second part is when you open the drain, at the bottom there is a pipe. Now, that pipe is not expanded all right, simultaneously, the effects are going to be, you know, sort of felt at the pipe now. 
So essentially, we call the shifting bottlenecks. We had the drain of the bottleneck. We expanded the size, and what happened was the pipe at the bottom got to be the bottleneck. So it's not that it didn't work. Of course it worked. But now we've got containers on shore, which are lying to be picked up. And all the ports are you know, sort of levying these huge charges if people don't pick up the containers. So let's talk about Florida. How do Florida's ports fit into the nation's supply chain infrastructure? Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting question, and I'm glad that we are sort of talking about it a little bit, because there's two things here that we should keep in mind. One is that when we discuss issues about Florida ports, first of all, from a U.S. level, we're about 5% of the total volume currently. So obviously, we can always make the case saying, oh, we can have more capacity at these ports. Now, what does more capacity mean? We need to have longshore people loading and unloading all the stuff that comes in. We need to have an infrastructure, which is a rail or trucks, which are going to visit these ports and take the goods away from them. Because otherwise, we're going to do the same thing we did in Long Beach, which is boats are going to be out there. We want to unload them. We do. And then we have this huge set of warehouses where all the containers are lying. So I think when you think about these types of issues, it's sort of a little bit more complicated than it really appears to be. Oh, we have capacity. Let's use it. Right, which is really the rationale that's being put forward. The other two parts here is that people might not be familiar with this, but most of the shipments are coming on what we call ultra-large vessels. These ultra-large vessels are about 14,501 TEUs and above. Some of the ports on the Florida side might not be able to handle those vessels. The second thing is to get them to Florida, you've got to go through the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal does not handle ultra-large vessels. They handle Neo-Panamax and lower. So the idea is that you have to have smaller vessels coming in. If you have smaller vessels coming in, the cost is higher. The third thing is if you don't have the infrastructure, how do we actually manage those ports? So I think it's, it's sort of a very deep issue that you need to think about and you know, sort of try to entertain all the solutions to it before you sort of suggest it as, uh, I guess, a policy. Sounds like it's not anything that could happen overnight per se, but what about looking further into the future? Yeah, I think further into the future, actually, there's a unique solution that I don't know if, you know, it's just come out in the last five or six days, or has been publicized in the last five or six days. The unique solution is the following. Amazon is a case in point. What they did is they actually went out and bought a lot of small vessels. They're shipping their whole products to over 42 centers in the U.S., not the two ports only. The second thing is they have, because they have their own vessels and they're smaller, they can navigate the canal, they can get other places. And the idea is costs are higher, but at this point, the idea is to get the product to the people who want it. So people are, seem to be willing to bear the costs. So, you know, if you do this sort of far-reaching analysis or thoughtful analysis at a more strategic level where you think about things in advance, they've done that in advance. So now they're not facing the short. Like, for example, they say that what their shortage percentage jumped 15%, but the shortages originally were only about 1.5%. So when you say 15% increase, it's not a significant percentage of that total volume. So companies need to motivate this effort. You know, we can't sort of have a simple solution. I mean, Walmart and Costco actually have jumped into the same process. So we have examples of companies that are sort of trying to do this and use the ports, the smaller ports as service points. 
Do you think in a way that's why we ended up, I mean, we had the perfect storm of the pandemic, but it seems that we had really gotten to the point where we had gotten so close to the bone in terms of not being able to stretch anything any further. And so we were primed to be in this position. And so now if we can avoid it in the future, it might mean having a little more padding in that supply chain. Absolutely. I mean, we, we call it building flexibility in the supply chain, making it more agile to respond to stuff, you know, technical terminology or whatever, supply chain terminology. But the idea is that building in flexibility and building in additional slack or capacity, you know, indirectly is obviously warranted. But think about the shortage we have, for example, in trucking today. We don't have enough drivers. The containers that are offloaded and they're empty, they don't know where to put them. So the whole point is that, you know, we, we're going to have these disruptions occur. We, amount of padding that we built in will just drive our costs up because eventually somebody has to bear the cost. And the idea is that usually it's the consumer everything gets passed down to, not always the right thing to do, but that's what happens, right? So if we do that, absolutely. But on the other hand, we got so used to certain products costing so little that now all of a sudden if you have to pay more, I wonder what our reactions are going to be. So unless there's a change in consumption patterns, I don't see this building capacity or flexibility as a solution. What does the picture look like then in the months and, and even years ahead based on your experience? Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we can do several things. And I think some, some of the stuff that we do is actually very much reasonable. I think the managers, if you look at most of the people, the executives are running most of the companies, you'll see a marked shift uh, over the last 10 years. About 30, 35% of them said disruptions is the major issue. Today, it's almost 75 to 80% say that's my my major, major issue, all right? So there's a mindset change. Other changes, mindset changes in terms of technology. So bringing technology to bear in some of these methods and implementation of the supply chains, I think will ha probably have the most positive impact for us going forward. I mean, like I keep saying, you know, I, I don't want to sort of go on to Amazon and so on, but even Walmart today recognized the shift in online buying that took place because of the pandemic. And they're seeing that the shift is not going back. So it's not like we're going to start going more to the store. It's just that we'll go to the store maybe, but we will still continue buying online. So trends like that are hard to, in some sense, you know, go against the grain. I think the pandemic has changed the life set. And it's going to be a little time before we all can adapt to the new way of doing things and how best to serve a customer. Well, speaking of time, when do you anticipate or when can consumers anticipate an end to the supply chain issues that we're experiencing right You're now? You're going to put me out of a job <laughs> if I have to respond to that question. I mean, I, I told you, supply chain disruptions are a way of life. So I don't think we can have an end. We can have definitely an end to this current disruption that's happening. And that's simply by recognizing that just because we sort of handle a one bottleneck, like the ports operating them, there's going to be another one that comes up. So we have this phenomenon of what we call shifting bottlenecks, and that's going to keep happening. So till everything stabilizes to the new surge in demand that's taking place, this is not going to be resolved. And if you say timeline, uh, it depends on the goods and the products. But I think that certain product categories, for example, electronics, the ones that use the chips especially, is going to take a little bit longer because we are trying to build up infrastructure locally to make those things. In fact, the federal government is making investments in, those, in that sector. 
so that we have local capacity. But that's going to take a little while to pay off. So it might even be the middle of next year. I think the most immediate stuff, we talk about toys all the time. We talk about stuff in the grocery stores. I don't see that as a major thing extending beyond February of next year, simply because the demand will go down after the Christmas season. And so everything will get to a stable level and then people will start planning ahead from February to the next year's December. And that lead time is enough for the supply chain to react and sort of stabilize. So I think that's that's the way I'm thinking about it. And it sounds like even though there might be a little more diversification in terms of where we get things from, you don't see a huge shift in terms of us no longer bringing things in from global suppliers. I think if it's left up to the people who manage the corporations, the companies, and so on, there are very good reasons why we've gone international. It's not that, you know, in in some sense, it is a half-baked decision that, oh, we wanted to minimize, we wanted to get something for 10 cents versus 15 cents. I think it was a very measured response, and I think it happened over time. So I don't think you can correct for that immediately. There is the idea of what we call insourcing now versus outsourcing. So basically getting stuff from closer. So what we might do is the buffers or things, flexibility that you talked about building in earlier, we might build that in some location which is more closer to where the customer is. But that's the real change that I see in the longer run. I don't see these supply chains disintegrating or new ones emerging. Of course, there are certain regions of the world that are so badly affected that they might suffer for a longer period of time than we have or we will. And your advice to consumers, anything that you would share with us? So this was this is this is always hard to say, and I think that I don't know how to best put it, but I'll give you a couple of things. We we've done this before. We're in this together. Let's not sort of get on this bandwagon of I want this, I want that. Let's moderate our wants a little bit. Let's think logically. Let's realize that, you know, we can't sort of solve the problem by ourselves. And please, please, please don't go and do this toilet paper shortage for us again. I mean, you know, just just curtail your, you know, your impulses and be a little bit thoughtful. Uh, The second thing is, yes, you will pay higher prices. But the part about higher prices is I just read today, in fact, that a lot of corporations in 2022 are going to pay us higher wages. So I know people say inflation, but wait a minute. I mean, if we're going to be back to the status quo in terms of the net effect, it's not too bad. I mean, our incomes have gone up and costs have gone up. So, okay, we'll manage that. And the third thing for consumers is, you know, look for deals continuously. There is lots of opportunities out there. People are offering stuff at good prices. And maybe you won't get the brand you want, but you'll get a good brand. You know, so in terms of moderating what we do, I, I sort of wanted to end a little bit not with the consumer so much, with the companies. If you think about, you know, what should we expect and what should people do? I think companies need to be a little bit careful here because the idea of a container from China to a port in the U.S. being $1,200 at one time and now costing $20,000 the idea that Maersk, which is the biggest shipping line in the, in the world, is making exorbitant profits just on that big margin jump is sort of a little disappointing to see, to be totally honest. I mean, to me, it looks like, you know, when, when we have a shortage of gas, the gas stations raise the prices to gouge us. So I, I just would like the corporations to be a little hesitant 
I think the best examples, actually, if you look at pricing schemes and stuff, Walmart's gone up about 22%, Amazon about 25%. So I think those are maybe some things that consumers can bear. But anything like you know what we're seeing in the shipping lines is enormous. I mean, that, that level of profit, be a little bit thoughtful. The second thing is, uh, remember, consumers have long memories. And we will reward people who sort of are sort of a little bit recognition of our, you know, sort of conditions too. And uh, finally, I think that uh, you know, don't 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 do things uh, short term. You know, this financial return. I have to get a better return for my shareholders and stuff. Just be a little bit longer term, and I think you'll come out ahead. Great advice, uh, Sue. Thank you so much for being our guest today. No, oh, you're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Listeners, thank you for joining us for the first season of From Florida. On behalf of our team, I want to thank the guests who shared the great things they are doing to ensure the success of our students and to make a difference in our state, our nation and our world. We are going to take a short break and in the interim, I invite you to visit news.ufl.edu to catch up on any episodes you may have missed this season. We'll be back on January 4 with a new episode of From Florida. I hope you'll join us.